Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Why should you wish to fight someone who is here only to save you pain and trouble? For you, as well as for the rest of all the happy, useful people on this planet, I and my own strength am willing to assume all the pain, all the responsibility, all the burdens of thought and decision. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club, where we are exploring The Wonderful Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle, one of my favorite books from childhood, which is only kind of matured and deepened um, as I've enjoyed it as an adult. It's been so fun to explore this, both with friends each week on the podcast. And as you all know, each week I have had a guest to discuss a chapter with me. And this week we are exploring chapter seven, an ominous chapter. And I have as my special guest a new friend who has a shared love of Madeline Lingle's wonderful corpus, and in fact has written a book about Madeline Lingle. Welcome on the show, Sarah Arthur. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to have you. I had somebody reach out and say they just loved your book, and they said you should see if she would want to chat with you about Madeline. So we'll chat about your book as well, but before that, give us a quick intro into who you are, where you are, what you do. Yeah. Well, um, I am an author based in Lansing, Michigan, and I have two boys that are um, going into second and fourth grade, uh, depending on what happens this fall (laughs) with school. Um, And my husband's a pastor here in Lansing, and I've been an author since the early 2000s. My first book was Walking with Frodo, A Devotional Journey Through the Lord of the Rings. Um, And I've since done lots of books about books and authors um, and the intersection of faith and great literature. Um, and, and that's kind of been really my jam. Um, uh, but lately my husband and I have been more and more involved in racial reconciliation work in Lansing among mm-hmm. churches. Um, and, and also in our local community. Oh, that's so important. And, um, you just sent me your book from, I think it was two years ago called A Light So Lovely, which is the spiritual legacy of Madeline Lingle. And I have been so enjoying reading through this and reading interviews you did with people in her life and people who've been influenced by her. And it's just really a lovely book. So tell us a bit about kind of how you came to know and love Madeline's work and what inspired this book. Yeah, I, you know, I was one of those kids who read voraciously and indiscriminately. So (laughs) I know that I was reading the Austin family books by Madeline, um, her fiction books when I was in junior high and high school. Um, And everyone would talk about A Wrinkle in Time, but I was like, oh, I'm not a science fiction person. (laughs) Plus, back in the 80s, the book cover had this really scary, the man with the red eyes was terrifying. And I'm like really affected by what I see visually. So I was like, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) But never connected that book with the Austin family author. Like, Mm. I just was reading so much that I never paid attention to that kind of thing. But anyway, so then in college, um, I 
was exposed to her nonfiction books. So Walking on Water, which is her book about the intersection mm -hmm. of faith and art. Um, and then she came to campus when I was a student at Wheaton College. Um, and I remember she had just published The Rock That Is Higher, Story mm -hmm. is Truth. And, um, and I bought that book and she signed a copy of it um, for me. And that was my only interaction with her, but she lives large in my memory, <laughs> like she does for so many of the people that I interviewed for my book. Mm -hmm. Um, but because my, you know, my sort of focus as an author has been on the intersection of faith and literature, it was just a natural, um, when it was clear that a Wrinkle in Time movie was coming out two years mm -hmm. ago and it was her 100th birth year, it would have been her 100th birth year, um, in 2018, Sondervan reached out to me about doing a book about Madeline and I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like the culmination of everything. I know. Um, so that's that's the book that I sent you and that you've been enjoying and um, and just it's led to so many interesting conversations like this one mm -hmm. um, that I can't wait to have with you because just the interviews with people who knew her alone mm -hmm. was fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I got to know her family, like her granddaughters, mm -hmm. um, who you'll be hearing from mm -hmm. at least one of them later in the summer. And I'll let you explain that later. But mm -hmm. um, Charlotte has become one of my good friends and we co-directed um the Madeline Langle conference, the first ever Madeline Langle conference mm -hmm. in New York City last November. Oh, wow. Um, and it was, it was just amazing um, to be on the ground with Langle fans. <laughs> that's um, just, that's so yeah. fun. Yeah, I love fun. two things. One is, it is really amusing to me. I think every person that I have talked to on the podcast so far has talked about the covers like the 1980 uh -huh. covers of uh -huh. every one time. Because <laughs> yeah. there's, yeah. there's several different, and, the, and they're all kind of terrifying or kind of fever dreamy. And um, yes. Yes. yeah, really strange. But yeah. the second thing was, the thing I was really um, struck by as I was reading through A Light So Lovely is how many people have been very shaped by her writing or by one interaction with her. And I always yeah. think it's interesting to think, you know, the impact that an author had not only in the work in their words but then also in the lives of other people and yeah. I noticed that when I had first tweeted about doing this book club um actually I wasn't even tweeting about doing the book club I think I just said who who loves Madeline Lingle and why and I got mm -hmm. hundreds of responses and it was interesting because <laughs> a lot of them were like you know I love her books or she helped me you know give give room for for questioning or she you know helped me know that christians could be an art but then a lot of them were like i was at a writing conference with her and uh yes. or and, you know and her words really empowered me or she was kind of a as my brother would say a refiner's fire um mm -hmm. literarily mm -hmm. and i just thought it's interesting what a um what a personal impact that she seems to have had did you find that when you're doing the interviews oh yeah and and not only with the people who knew her but people who were influenced by her who are themselves now influencers. I think yeah. of Jeffrey Overstreet who teaches um, writing and mm -hmm. film, is a film critic based at Seattle Pacific University. Um, I mean, for, for, for many people, especially those who grew up in, in super conservative families that had a real suspicion of the imagination, mm -hmm. perhaps, um, it was life-saving in a way to interact with her writing because it affirmed that the imagination is a good gift from God mm -hmm. that he uses to his glory and art can be an act of worship. And like for some people, they've never heard that before. It was validating on a really existential level mm -hmm. of the kinds of things that they're drawn to and that they like to do and that they're called to do. Um, so that's, it, it was, it was amazing to hear 
story after story after story mm-hmm. like that, um, including, I don't know if you've gotten the, to the epilogue yet in A Light So Lovely, mm-hmm. but like her writing has saved people's lives, mm-hmm. like people who are on the brink of like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, her, the good word came along at the right time to intervene for mm-hmm. them. Um, that's pretty, that's huge. Yeah. That's huge. That's a legacy that it's, you know, it goes bigger and deeper and wider than any author could ever imagine. I'm sure. Yeah. My sister was on a couple of weeks ago and, um, as she said, uh, and kind of one of her periods of becoming, she refused to read the Bible for a whole year because she just felt like mm-hmm. she couldn't handle it. And, but Madeline was like one of the authors that she read. And for her, that was, mm-hmm. it kind of gave her hooks into something that, sh- that was meaningful and, kept her from straying from the faith, but gave her room to question and doubt and be yep, led yep. into as this, as the book is coming from that beautiful quote where she says, um, I, I'd have to find it in here, but that we should on that, the back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On the back that we draw mm-hmm. people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are or how right they are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts and the source of it. And I think, um, that yeah. that was something that she made room for, even for people who maybe were believers but were struggling to stick around. Um, she was she ran interference for those people all the time in ways we may never know, hmm. whether it was like an email or a letter or a phone call or somebody yeah. at a conference or fan mail. I mean, it was almost constant for her she to remind, hear from people like that. Yeah, it reminds me very much. I remember I had a, a professor in college. I also went to a um, one of those Christian liberal arts colleges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. he was, uh, I remember him at the very opening, I think it was a class on Christ the Gospels. And he was like, you're going to have questions come up in here and if any of you attack the doubters like I will silence you and it was this kind of a little bit (laughs) aggressive like I want to make room for them because I want them to be able to feel like they can question and come to a a beautiful truth that they can sink their teeth into and my dad tells the story he went to Western Theological Seminary Uh in Michigan so we're talking like the late 1960s Mm -hmm. he tells the story of one professor who was doing roll call very Mm -hmm. beginning of the semester huge like intro to New Testament class or something Mm -hmm. And he's doing roll call and he pauses at one kid's name and he turns to this young man, we'll call this young man John, and says, John, do you have any questions about the Bible? And the kid was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, we'll change that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I just... Or do you have any problems with the Bible? Maybe that was the question. And he was like, no. And he's like, you should. Yes. <laughs> well, but I feel like that was kind of the space that Madeline made was she made me. Room for you to question and and wrestle, but that that's actually a conduit for closeness. You know that you yes. can't you can't really have a an intimate, a true relationship with God or with these beliefs unless you have space to just wrestle completely. And well, and not only that, she believed, and we say this all the time, but we don't actually live like we mean it. <laughs> that the power of that God is more powerful than any evil force in creation. Mm. So like, if we're asking questions, that doesn't scare God in any way. Like what kind of threat would that in any way pose to God's character, to God's Mm. purposes, to God's work in your life? And, And the evil side of creation, like 
might take advantage of that season of doubt, but certainly has no business doing that. But who's to say the Holy Spirit isn't also right there just as yeah. fast with more power? Absolutely. Um, she And it's a quote from Don Hettinger that I include in my book, is that Madeline refused to limit God. Hmm. Yeah. She absolutely refused. Well, and God would have to be awfully small to be so threatened by our questions that they would. Like, any question. Yeah, right. I know. I mean, and like we think of all the times that God, God's self asks a question, that Jesus asks a mm-hmm. question. This is a mode of engagement that is not foreign to God. It doesn't threaten or fright. Like what could possibly scare God? Nothing. I know. Nothing can like, scare God. Where, where are God's people on the front lines of, yeah. um, of you know being being resistors um to their own ignorance right like yeah dive in dive in i love uh one of my professors always he talks about the word quest question that it comes from it comes from literally the word that means to quest to set out looking for something yes an adventure yeah, yeah and um and i think that reframing that and seeing that as a good a good thing that the holy spirit can be in that can draw us closer and broaden our experience of God in the world and and as you said illuminate our ignorance is such a powerful thing and yeah. I think she's so good at it yeah. well yeah. and it was born out of her own experience because yeah. she entered a season of doubt as a young woman and actually the wrinkle in time is comes out of a decade of really beginning to return mm. to faith questions in earnest um, and to 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 really search for but I you know she had kind of been raised in the church as a kid going to you know as an mm-hmm. Episcopalian um, but it wasn't very frequent or very intense mm-hmm. um, she had bad experiences in boarding school yeah. English run Anglican boarding schools um, but none of that could ruin the beauty of scripture for her <laughs> and none of it None of, not you know none of it ruined the glorious language of the book of common prayer for her um but she still had so she wanted a reason she wanted the truth to line up with the beauty of it you know what mm, i mean yeah um and the que- that quest um really is what wrinkling time is born out i know of. And I, I think that's maybe why it's always resonated with me so much is it's, it really is a quest. It's a searching into, I always think of one of my friends who is not a Christian was always like, why wouldn't you want to believe something that beautiful <laughs> and big? And yes. I feel like that's what she yeah. was kind of going for. Was she, yeah. she, uh, she loved, I loved reading in your book that she always read the King James Bible because even when she, you know, wasn't very religious because she felt like. It had the most beautiful language that built, you know, the English language and writing and stuff. And I think she was questing out to find something as true as she felt in the beauty. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's why it resonates with so many people. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, I guess we sure. should probably actually talk about the chapter at hand. Well, I mean, it's all about that. So, let's, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're in chapter seven, the man with the red eyes. The man, yes, the one who terrified you away from the book to begin with. On the cover. Exactly. <laughs> so, I usually try to do a Cliff Notes version of what happens in this chapter. Um, do you want to try to give us a rundown ish? There's not. Um, no, I'll let you do that part okay. because I think you have a better sense of how to succinctly do this for your readers. Okay. So, all right. So, um, in this chapter, uh, we find ourselves in the central central um, mm. intelligence, 
which is this very bureaucratic building. Um, it reminded me very much when I was <laughs> reading it of, of uh, applying for a visa. I live in the UK and it's just mm. a nightmare to get a visa. I think anyone who has immigrated anywhere uh, yep. knows that it is this kind of nightmarish. But did you put the X form and the Y this? And then did you do this? Right. And it's very imper- <laughs> right. impersonal and exasperating. So they kind of go in and they're trying to suss this out. It says that everyone looks, um, this kind of sitting, and we already know that they're all very uniform, but they're sitting like statues in the green light that makes them all look bilious. And um, it's interesting. She has this little line where she says, there was a sameness to them, like the sameness of people riding in a subway. And I thought this was funny because I thought when Mm -hmm. I think of subways, like I think of New York or the Tube in London, and one of the things that always strikes me most about them is how completely different every single person Mm -hmm. that gets in is. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, but remember, this is 19, she's writing this in 1960. So maybe the subways looked a bit more so, like Mad Men. Yeah, this was the this was the normal way to get to work in your business suit and mm-hmm. in your. I mean, yeah, this is this is not what people took who couldn't afford. Mm, that's just take other things. Yeah, right. So they were much more uniform in the way they looked yeah. headed into their jobs in it the city. Probably had much more of a. Um, a madman look to it all the uh-huh. people in their little order yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So, i mean that's this this thing so they go through this and then eventually they find themselves with this man with red eyes and we could dive into this i was saying does did he did i miss his name he doesn't have a name does he no name and he doesn't no have a name and that's important um mm-hmm. and so does anybody have a name i don't think anybody has a name on camisades no i don't think so i the, not that I, not in chapter six and i certainly don't think this one yeah and um also there's a really interesting little incident i'm not doing a very good job making this succinct but where this guy says well i should i have to report you and he says i'm fond of children um but you know rather than run the risk of getting processed myself or reprogrammed myself I i should report you so there's this kind of fear that we see going around this and then we have this kind of standoff with the man with the red eyes he can he's not speaking to them he speaks directly to their minds and you kind of, the sense that I get in this is that Charles Wallace is trying to almost outsmart him or move beyond him. And we see this Charles kind of, Wallace, who is five. Who is five years old. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and, and then the, the chapter ends with him uh, kind of being taken over and speaking with a voice that is Charles Wallace's, but Meg knows that it's no longer him. So that's kind of the flyover of what is taking place. There's so much in this chapter that I found interesting, so much to pull out. Um, what were some of the things you, you kind of took note of? Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, so much of my work on Madeline has been sort of big picture stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was fun to dive in to this chapter in particular. But um, I think the the fact that no one has names is really important. At some point, she does mention that everybody looks as different as people do in our world, mm-hmm. but their expressions, like the ways that they, their affect mm-hmm. was very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting thing to say. Um, it was sort of like their, you know, the way people look on the subway, like they're not engaging. That is mm-hmm. something still true on the subway. If somebody oh, yeah. com- is engaging you, you're like, whoa, <laughs> what's gone off. wrong? I know this is weird. Give me space. <laughs> um, and so, um, and 
the other thing um, is I'm really struck by um, the the children are all like hyper intelligent in some unique way, mm-hmm. and and you would think that this man interacting with their minds would mean Charles Wallace is the strongest one here because that's kind of his strength mm-hmm. too. Whereas Calvin is sort of emotional intelligence mm-hmm. and Meg is like um, just a geek, like smarts intelligence, but yeah. also like, so, so, but sh- of all of the kids, you would think that Charles Wallace would be at his best in this mm-hmm. element, but you suddenly realize how much he's at his weakest here. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as Meg continues to get worried about him and more and more worried about him. Um, and yeah. So it's um, like, like for Calvin, for, for instance, acknowledges that he's scared stiff. Like yeah. he has enough emotional intelligence to say, let's name what's happening here. Yeah. Um, whereas Charles Wallace is, it, he's engaging it all very cerebrally. And I think, um, I think, yeah. uh, you know, in the last chapter, you have this warning that, that they're all given and, and Charles yes. Wallace's is beware of pride and arrogance for they may betray you and that's really interesting because it implies that pride and arrogance can be kind of useful in moments mm. do you know what i mean yeah and yes. and certainly yeah. it can um mm-hmm. but mm. but what we're seeing here is that it seems like charles wallace is kind of trying to stuff down or not acknowledge or just maybe he even hasn't perceived his own fear and is and, and it says meg is wondering if calvin has noticed that really it's bravado He's not mm-hmm. actually not afraid. And yeah. and yeah. Um, it's interesting. I um, I feel like kind of one of the central tensions of this chapter, which then, of course, builds into the next one, is what does it take to resist this kind of pull towards a deadening or a uniformity? And I think what we see in Charles Wallace is that cleverness is not enough. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not enough simply mm-hmm. to acknowledge it all strubly and... And it reminds me, um, we were talking about this before, there there are so many similarities between this book and That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. Yes, yes. And, right. of course, in that, he has this very, uh, this is one of my favorite papers to write uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, I did it for one of my papers when I was at Oxford um, on how That Hideous Strength, this is a, a rabbit trail, but we'll link back in. That Hideous Strength is very much just like a storification of um Lewis's essay, The Abolition of Man. And in that, mm-hmm. he talks about kind of like mm-hmm. the Greek idea of, you know, there's... Men without chests. Yeah, men without chests that you can have. Mm-hmm. You have the intellect, and you build to think, and you have the appetites, and that's kind of your stomach. So you have mental is, of course, head, and then stomach are the appetites. But then chest is like the character, the magnanimity, the the correct affections that, that mm-hmm. train you to be able to use your mind well. And he says compassion, that, yeah, empathy, compassion. and heart. Yes, mm-hmm. and he says that mm-hmm. one of the problems with modern educa- education, in his mind, at that point, you know, the 1950s, is that uh, we've created men without chess. We've created clever devils. That was his word for mm-hmm. it. He says you can just if you don't if you have people who are very smart but have no um, no empathy, no love, no courage, then then that really isn't enough. And I feel like not that Charles Wallace, yeah, not that Charles Wallace is a clever devil, but he Mm -hmm. is, he's so cerebral that he hasn't quite developed that chest to be able to reject. And right now it's like he's trying to fight 
this uniformity, this wicked thing by outsmarting it. But there's some level at which you can't outsmart, I think, mm-hmm. what's here. Well, and he gets very desperate and yeah. realizes this. And that's when he reacts with violence. Do you remember? He, he rushes mm-hmm. forward and hits the man as hard as he can. Um, because it's suddenly, it's slowly dawning on him that this is not, this, like, his resistance is not working. Yeah. Um, and so, and you know, he, like, when that creativity vanishes in mm-hmm. all of us, when we realize that whatever it is, our, our resistance to, um, to evil isn't working, um, we, we tend to sort of tunnel vision and for many of us, um, like the only thing we can think of is some kind of violence hmm. and, um, like, because we can't think anymore, like all yeah. it's, that we've just been taken over by our own, like now it's all, it's all appetites. It's all. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. We've used our brain. Um, it hasn't worked. We don't have a chest. So we go straight yep. to the fight or flight. Right. It's, it's that. And there's no, we don't default to any sort of, um, Christian virtue that, um, could even be willing to, to resist by, um, ways that the world doesn't like the world doesn't normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think it's that, that's a really telling moment for me when mm-hmm. Charles resorts to violence. Yeah. Because he's just feeling very helpless. It's, it's too much. So yeah. um, I feel like one of the central themes in this, too, and this is kind of, it kind of builds and builds, but is this theme of uniformity. And uh, reading this and um, reminded me very much of when I was uh, undergraduate. I did this tour day at a church of Scientology, not because I was particularly interested in it. I just, <laughs> I it was like this, we could go to a mosque or a Buddhist temple or uh, uh-huh. church of Scientology. And for some yeah. reason I chose church of Scientology. And I'm not sure why. Um, but the thing that struck me about it when I was there was it was this kind of odd, everyone was very kind of strangely happy. Everyone wore the same outfits. There were all these quotes from L. Ron Hubbard on the wall. And it reminds me very much, we kind of have this, this, it felt reading it very similar to that feeling of, huh. of uniformity of kind of like a, a painted on happiness, but not really happiness, just kind of placidity almost. Yeah. And yeah. Um, anyway, it, so uh-huh. I, I feel like that, and it was interesting too. I remember kind of getting, I was fiery, however old I was, probably late teens. And I remember getting into a bit of a tiff with one of the people because I noticed they had crosses and I was like, well, crosses are kind of a Christian thing. And he was like, well, they're actually a universal symbol of hope and peace. And I was like, well, I mean, they're actually kind of a symbol of torture. Like public, public execution? Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. And violence? I was, yeah. And like, I was like, this is kind of sanctioned awful, like brutality. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and I was like, I just, I don't think you can just make that what it's not. Anyway, but I remember feeling frustrated because the thing that it felt like to me was that there was like this... Um, this uniformal kind of rejection of pain and suffering, trying to reach a, a state of uniformity and placidity and kind of evenness. Well, and the erasure of distinctions, right? Yes. Well, like Christianity is really just saying the same thing as all these other things. Yeah. And and that's a that's a very um, that's a very liberal. Um, like in, in terms of liberal, liberal yeah. education impulse, right? Yeah. Like, like we're, you know, we're just, it's, we all have similar experiences. We just express them differently, but mm-hmm. it all 
really points back to the same thing. And, and Madeline really rejected that. Yeah. Like we're not all, it's not all the same, nor is it all saying the same thing. Well, and I feel like that's coming out also with this lack of names that there's, Yes. It's from a, from like an overarching kind of philosophical level, but then it's also down to the individual and kind of the, the desire for everything to be same and there be no differences because that will cause no conflict. And that's why I read that opening section Mm -hmm. is it's kind of this Mm -hmm. idea that if we just give up individuality and separateness and particularity, then we wouldn't have kind of, um, these conflicts, Conflict. conflicts mm-hmm. and pain yeah. and decision and burdens. Yes. So right. you were saying right. a bit about what is, what is Madeline's kind of theology of particularity? Yes, this is huge for her. In fact, if, if anyone wants to go back and just type in like Christianity Today, 1979, Madeline Lengel interview, mm-hmm. find that interview and read it because CT is doing a really interesting thing. Um, 1979, She's been on the rise as an author who writes both children's fiction and Christian nonfiction, religious Mm -hmm. nonfiction. Um, But she's already controversial. Um, You know, there are people who question, like, so she says she's a Christian, but she doesn't talk about Christianity in the same way that other people do. And that interview is fascinating because um, she talks about that theological concept of the scandal of particularity, that Mm. God would choose a particular planet, a particular people, mm-hmm. a particular time in history, a particular person through which to enact salvation for everybody. And it's just this fascinating, like, mm-hmm. um, it's a scandal that God yeah. would do that. You know, why not just like universally save everybody all at once in the mm-hmm. same, you know, and, and she, and, and for her, this was the culmination in some ways, this idea of her journey through doubt um, and it's, it didn't lead to certainty. It mm-hmm. led to faith in spite of doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, she, so as a, as a mom of young kids, she and her husband left New York city in 1946, um, which was common for a lot of the intelligentsia of New York after the bomb dropped, um, and her, after the atomic bombs were dropped, there was fear of retaliation mm-hmm. and that the big cities would be scary places to live. You couldn't raise your kids in these big mm-hmm. cities because of nuclear, because of um, possibility of nuclear retaliation. As if Connecticut is safer. I was thinking <laughs> that. I remember, I remember thinking that. I was like, well, but, yeah. but like, like it wasn't like everyone knew all the details about yeah. atomic energy at that point. They like couldn't the Google, person, how, how far like, does an atomic bomb, like, I mean, yeah. don't forget, no one knew about this bomb till it dropped. No, the average person did not even know or dream that such a thing existed. Yeah. It dropped. The secret was out. This kind of power had been unleashed in the world. People were terrified. Mm-hmm. So she and her husband, Hugh, moved to rural Connecticut. They were going to raise their kids there. They spent roughly a decade there. That's where Crosswigs is. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the home that they live in is the home that the Murrays, it's based mm-hmm. on the, you know, Mm-hmm. Murray's home is based on the home that they lived in, Crosswicks. And and she began to really question her. Um, she was already like basically an atheist at that point, tilting towards agnostic and now on this journey. So she meets mm-hmm. with these Congregationalist ministers um, in the nearby church who give her the German theologians to read. 
you know, as one does. I don't know. Maybe they thought she was like New York intelligentsia. And they're like, <laughs> well, here, we'll give her. She's an intellectual. Let's give her. The... And she Wait. hated these writings. Hated well, them. I was going to say, which German theologians? I mean, we're talking probably. Um, like. Um, oh, sorry. Feuerbach, Schleiermacher. Like Schleiermacher. Yeah. Um, probably. Um, oh, gosh. I, uh, I've written him down. I, it's in the chapter on. Um, in uh, A Light So Lovely, uh, there's a B one, and I can't remember. And I had to do some work to figure out who these guys what, were, yeah. because she just talks about German theologians. Anyway. Who I, I'll, tend, I'll who I tend not to like, just like as a, I just find yeah, it I mean, it, difficult she, and heavy. and Yeah. She just, cre- and, and they were, they, in her mind, they were putting God in easily containable boxes. Well, because, I mean, the criticism of Schleiermacher is always that he's like, well, Kant was right, but we can understand that, you know, yeah. God is all rational and he just happens to be the exact God of the Lutherans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. Charlotte is going to love you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I ha- we had to do a little hunting around to figure out who those um, theologians are. We're talking about Rudolf Boltmann, okay. Paul Tillich. Yeah. Um, you know, she's probably going back a little bit in time to Kant, like you said. I mean, so, so. She's reading these. She's hating them. They're putting to her to sleep. Like if she was, you know, having a hard time sleeping, she's like, I would just start reading these theologians. And that did the trick. Um, and so, but, so at about that time, let's say 1956, I think Albert Einstein died. And so there's this whole spotlight on his work. Um, there's articles about him in life and in time and in the Atlantic. And so she starts reading you know, um, nuclear physicists and astrophysicists. It is like, she's, it's fascinating science. It's like theoretical, um, quantum theory stuff. And of course I've, I've reached the limit of what I know, but, (laughs) but that began to show her that if that, that what happens to the smallest atom of creation affects the farthest flung reaches of the Mm. universe like everything is connected um and and if god cares about what happens to these tiny invisible Mm. particles how much more must god care for each one of us if Mm. if an electron in you know, a distant galaxy matters to God and what it's doing has an effect not only on its own solar system and galaxy and and that corner of the universe, even all the way to us, then then how much more must each mm-hmm. of us matter? Mm-hmm. And our particularity matters that you are not the same as me, that you mm-hmm. think different thoughts, you have a different way of being in the world, you have different ideas, you, you contribute things that I never would have thought of um, that matters to God, um, and it matters enough that He joined in that particularity mm. by becoming one of us. Mm. I mean, it's like Annie Dillard talks about that that like every theologian has differentiated hands from another mm. theologian. Like the scandal of particularity, Annie Dillard says, is the only um, thing that I, in particular, know. Yeah, um, and uh, and that's that really was what sold Madeline Mm -hmm. on the incarnation. Hmm. Yeah. That it makes it both possible and in some way also necessary. Like that if we were to think about salvation for the whole world, it couldn't be this global thing. It would have to be the particular because that's what shapes the whole world as it is. Yes. And, um, I also, your name, your name 
matters. Who you, yeah. who, who you are, the, like you being completely different from all others. Mm-hmm. Um, the erasure of names in this chapter is so significant. Yeah. It is so significant. It's funny. I was thinking about this this morning. Um, I went our like weekly outing here in Colorado because things are kind of open, closed, you know, is that my mom and I go with our little masks and we go sit in our favorite coffee shop and, um, and there's a new barista there and his name is Khan and we met him and I was, and I was like, well, that's such a cool name. Like I, I don't think I've ever met somebody with that name. And I was thinking about that and thinking about how names have this, this strange power to be able to know someone's name is to know their particularity. It's also to have sometimes for someone to know your name can feel like kind of a, uh, to, uh, an invasion. Like I've known sometimes, but I just wanted to be anonymous, but usually yeah. it was when I was feeling small or overexposed. And so for someone to know your name and to feel loved and to feel remembered. And I always, you know, this is probably a bit judgmental, but cause I'm terrible with names. So it's actually very, um, hypocritical, but I always <laughs> am impressed by people, um, who, whether they're impressive because they're a professor or they're an author or whatever, I'm always impressed by people who try to remember names or at least remember people because it's a sign of, I don't see you just as another vast, one of the many people in the subway. I see you as a person with a history and a name. And even like, you know, that's reflected in Genesis when you have this kind of beautiful opening and then God takes Adam and goes through the creation and is like, let's name these animals. And it's this sense of, acknowledging them and also mm. that we we feel a sense of obligation to people whose names we know you know mm-hmm. that there's that sense of if someone is not nameless to us then we but like a feeling of like i i'm responsible to you i think that well this is a it's a significant um aspect of the movement in the black community right now mm-hmm. to say the names of um those who have been killed Right. So um, and it doesn't it doesn't matter whether somebody has a rap sheet or not. That person was a person of particularity who matters to God and their name is important. You name that person, you say their name. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, for instance, recently um, there's a young woman that I know through our churches have a relationship. She's Mm -hmm. from a, a black Pentecostal church. And we were part of uh, what we call a prayer-demic on Memorial hmm. Day. This was the day that George Floyd was killed. Hmm. We, like, b- hours before this, we're doing this whole um, prayer-demic around um, just grieving with the black community, basically, um, from the deaths of Ahmad Arbery and others, Breonna mm-hmm. Taylor, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're, so, and she was, she was on that prayer team, and she was praying. Her prayer point was on healing, mm-hmm. right, that people would find healing after racialized trauma. And, um, and she was this young black woman and later she came back to me and she's like, all of a sudden I realized God wasn't done with me. Like I had mm-hmm. healing to do. My brother was killed in, um, 1999 in a, in, uh, an event with police and I've never talked about it ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she did a Facebook live post about her brother and what it was like as an eight year old to lose her brother, um, in a shootout. And then, um, that story was so moving that I was like, you need to tell this story. Let's, Mm -hmm. and and she eventually did an essay for Christianity today because Mm -hmm. it was, and, and the point was like, she finally felt permission to say his name, Mm -hmm. right. To say it out loud. 
Yeah. Um, and, and Madeline would have been all about this. I mean, if hmm. you could do a hashtag for this chapter, hmm. um, say their chapter names. seven, you say their names. Yes. Right? Yeah. I think what's interesting, too, is like with this, you think about all the people sitting in the waiting room and you think, do they ever have names? Do they hide their names? Have they forgotten mm-hmm. their names? And mm-hmm. it even makes me think, it's making me think of so many, so much of the importance of names in scripture. And like when it says your name will be written in the book of life. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? The idea that my name and your name and the name mm-hmm. of every person is is hidden in God's heart, that he hasn't forgotten it, that right. that there's right. a story and... and um, and yeah. I think that's one of the great dangers of living in a technological world is that um, mm-hmm. on the one hand, our names can be known much farther and wider because we can tweet them through the world. But also mm. technology has this, ha- I mean, at the very point of it is kind of to organize things according to data and we can become mm-hmm. much more, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can become much more comfortable with being demographics brands, you know, mm-hmm. and forgetting that names come with particularities and stories. And that yeah. uh, when we lose that, we both lose the ability to know that we're loved. We also lose the ability to love and respond mm-hmm. with, mm-hmm. with bravery for other people. Yeah. Well, and we, we, it's, it's this whole thing, the red, the man with the red eyes is saying like, you won't have to, the burden of decisions, you don't mm-hmm. have to worry about that anymore. Um, and there's a there's a kind of temptation in that, right? Because we're all like, there's so many decisions and it's so overwhelming. And wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have, it's, you know, adulting is hard. <laughs> um, and But what he's also doing there is erasing pa- your agency mm-hmm. um, and and your your power to do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? Like, yeah. like you have been given not only as a human being the dignity of being a unique and particular person with your own story to live and to tell, but through the power of Christ you're in the power of the Holy Spirit, you have a unique calling to fulfill mm-hmm. beyond just living a dignified human life. Yeah. So, so it's like, I mean, there's so much that's genius about this chapter, and I sometimes wonder if she even knew Hmm. how much she was doing with it till like the reader comes along is like, I found this and that. I can imagine her being like, Oh, I didn't even know that was there. <laughs> but what um, I love about her is I feel like she's intuitive, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I think she says this in walking on water where she's always like, I validate when people find things I didn't mean to put in there because it's yeah. part of the and whole experience. Books, what does she say? Like my books stay more than I am saying, like yeah. there's a way that the, that the work, and we can talk about, oh, we could get into walking on water sometime. Hmm. Maybe that could be another book club. Yeah. Week. But she talks about how the work has its own sort of, it's almost like it's its own thing. Like you're, 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 you're giving the work its own particularity hmm. um, by not super manipulating what shape it takes, right? Yeah. And so she, you see in this chapter, she's capturing things that she wants to say, but the chapter in a lot of ways is also saying more than I think she even knows it's saying. More than she meant to say. Uh, than she, and, and that's part of what made it, you know, Newberry yeah. winning material because it's, it clearly speaks um, in a bigger way than she probably even anticipated. Well, and um, this is, I don't usually get to connect my PhD to things, but Uh, There we go. (laughs) It's useful (laughs) for something. But one of the things in my section on literature, because it's all kind of about um, arts and moral formation, 
is that sometimes when we approach like a work of literature and we say, um, how does this form our emotions, our life, our character? A lot of times what we're looking for is people will kind of be like, well, what is it saying? What's the message behind it? What was the author? But the thing mm-hmm. is, if, if the reason that literature formed us was simply because it had a message that it was transferring to us, right. then would right. we not simply say... Why not just have the message? Yeah, but instead, there's this kind of... I, I really love... Um, there's several academic people that I love about this, but that it's really more about the relationship between the reader and the text that it creates these kind of new ways of reading it and when you read it at different time periods you know the way that we might think about namelessness um applies very particularly to our time uh in a way that madeline couldn't have applied it then but it's never could have anticipated but it's but it's every bit as meaningful and it's important and so i think when we think about how it shapes us part of it is that we come with our with our stories with our particularity to a text in its particularity Mm -hmm. and it's like a stone striking against each other it makes these sparks and this newness and i just love that um something that is a thorough line in this to me and i think ties in with the particularity is that the thing that constantly pulls meg kind of out of the hypnosis out of this kind of giving into it is always she is so single-minded about her desire to be with her father you Mm -hmm. know and Mm -hmm. to me that's this picture of of that the thing that it that can sustain us in the fight against evil is never a devotion to some kind of abstract thing but principles yeah principles but it's a love Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. particular for a particular person and and i think that that's what you see is her love for a particular person with a name with a relationship to her is Mm -hmm. what helps her kind of and obviously this will become more and more obvious but that's what keeps her on track in this conversation. And yeah. I think and, yeah. I, and I think that's, again, this picture of cleverness is not enough to protect us from evil. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. the ability to love and to name and to be loyal to mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Something yeah. beautiful. And, and to be mad. Yes. At what's going on. Like, she's, she's, she's angry. Um, and that that love and anger being so closely bound in her. Mm. Um, I think this was a huge point for Madeline that um, like if, if anger clouds you from being able to, to, you know, um, like act meaningfully in the world, if it becomes a paralysis, Mm -hmm. that's a problem. But if it becomes, if you start turning tables Mm-hmm. in the right places at the right times. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus didn't turn tables every time he walked in the temple, but yeah. he did it. <laughs> yeah. At some point he did it. Um, that, you know, she didn't want to take away that agency either. Yeah. Um, because if you have, if you have a chest that feels love, mm-hmm. you're going to feel all kinds of other emotions mm-hmm. too. Um, and to not sideline those as somehow um, dangerous or, Mm. Um, um, uh, paralyzing. Mm. Um, and so there's some emotions there's, there's that are good, inherently bad. There, yeah. There's good work to be done when you're mad. Yeah. Mothers uh, against drunk driving. Yeah. They got stuff done, man. And they and their thing was literally mad. <laughs> it was mad, and and that I think um, 
You see Meg resisting the man with the red eyes, not only because of her love for her father and for Charles Wallace, but because of her anger. Mm. Um, and she gets, and, and that, that's not going to save the day for her at the end mm-hmm. of the day. Like she, I mean, we get to the, the upcoming chapters you'll talk about mm-hmm. what it is that she learns that she has that it yeah. does not have. Um, but it, do, it has but work to do. It has work to do, and it can be good work to do. And in that instance, it in fact probably protects her from being yeah. sucked in. I um I have this memory that will always be with me. Of I did I did an acting class in college to think you know it'll be an easy few credits, and it was really not an easy few credits because no. <laughs> <laughs> it was with this wonderful, very southern, very southern um, professor who had like been on Broadway and. I remember he was having us do these scenes and it was a lot of, we, I, I think I did one from Streetcar Named Desire, you know, so they're all these very kind of heavy scenes. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and this is that Viola. Blanche. Person. Yes, Blanche. And I was Blanche. Um, but I remember he just got kind of flustered and frustrated with us one day because he went, all you kids, we're at this Christian college and you think that, that being mad is is bad that that there are certain feelings that if you had them if you admitted that you had them you wouldn't really be christian you wouldn't really be good Mm. and i remember him saying but god has given you a whole palette of colors and you're only (laughs) painting with yellow and pink and he was like but but god's given you deep sad blue and he's given you fire engine angry red and they're they are a part of what it is to be a human, but they're, I know. And it's funny because I always think that, you know, and I'm a fairly emotional person, so I don't need that much like permission (laughs) to feel mad. But I thought, you know, God has given us a whole palette to paint with. And there's a reason that we have these, these colors and they do their job, you know, and um, that doesn't mean that all emotions are justified all the time and they can become very destructive. And at various times we know that, but they also have their job to do. And in this sense, anger protects Meg. And I think it's a good thing. Well, I mean, so full confession here, um, as far as the way my, my story intersects with Mm -hmm. the writing of a light, so lovely and my engagement with Madeline about six hours after I turn in final revisions for Mm -hmm. light, so lovely, I was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer Mm -hmm. and, um, it was super extensive on the left side. I had to have a mastectomy, Um, And then because I was so young and it was such an aggressive form of breast cancer, Mm -hmm. um, I had to go through chemotherapy that summer about so so my book came out August 7th then and um, I started chemo on August 11th, less than two years ago. So this curly head of hair that nobody can see in this podcast (laughs) is all post chemo. It's a triumph. It's a triumph. I've got my hair game is strong right now. It is. Um, (laughs) But but I'll, I'll tell you what. Um, permission from Madeline to be mad Mm. that my boys earliest memories when they were four and six would be of mommy with cancer. Mm. I, I was mad about that. Mm. That is not fair. Yeah. Um, cancer sucks. Yeah. And it was devastating, um, to our family and disruptive. Um, Mm. But permission from Madeline to be mad about it might have saved my faith. Mm. Um, and recognizing that God is mad about cancer, right? Mm. Like, this is not okay. And also that it wasn't some sort of punishment, mm. right? Like, 
that that the job that Meg had to do um, through that struggle and that trial um, is something that at different times we are all going to face. Mm-hmm. It's not like some judgment on her family, even though she felt that judgment at the beginning of the story mm-hmm. from the principal and her neighbor, you know, her community. Yeah. She, her anger was justified. And in some ways, it helped her put one foot in front of the other. Mm. And I'd like to say that I was like, power of positive thinking. And, you know, that, um, that, that's, that, that you can sort of feel better just by um, sheer willpower. And, and no, 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 there are days that you're just going to wake up and just be really mad. <laughs> um and and I realized like that's okay. Like a low grade rage going into your third emo infusion is really that you may just make it through that infusion on rage alone. And <laughs> okay, so thank you God for the gift of emotions, right? Yeah. Because if I were numb to all of it, um, you know, I might have felt powerless to like do anything. I think that's the thing that anger does. You know, they always say it's anger is the um is never a primary emotion you know they always say that it's kind of doing its protective job either against mm-hmm. sadness mm-hmm. or fear but that's what it's yeah. doing it yeah. is doing its job and right. um right. yeah and i'm glad that you made it and i love your curly hair thank you <laughs> um but Me too. yeah Me too. but yeah. yeah so eventually when you get to the last chapter in a light so lovely i talk about um the the making a way through the darkness i mean i think it, the the light in this chapter is all wrong mm. you know yes it's and there's green. so much it feels like there, that that stressful fluorescent lighting that yes, assaults you and it's, it's not natural it's not real um um but but there's uh there's the the light that she is pointing us to throughout this whole book um, is the clear, holy, divine light of a creator who loves every single one of us for who we are in our unique, mm. um, in our uniqueness, not a light that's, that obliterates. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, when the light is all wrong, you know, something's mm. wrong. And so, so the man with red eyes, the people with green faces from the green light. She looks at Charles Wallace and Calvin, and their faces are weirdly green and bilious, too. It's, yeah, yeah, it's all wrong. Yeah. I think that's a really helpful reminder, too, with um, with the idea of it's okay to be angry and that can actually do its job. Because I think this has been a really rough six months into the year. And I think, I think that when you kind of don't know the end in sight for things getting to be normal or for when we'll when will there be justice and peace and harmony there could be this desire to kind of just shut down yeah uh, feelings because they just feel like they'll just go on and on but i think to remember that these are god's gift to us they are what he gives Mm -hmm. us i love the way saint macrina talks about emotions as a small army who go out Mm -hmm. and do things for us they can accomplish great and holy tasks and they Mm -hmm. can also and she says you know She's like, they also sometimes, um, if they become disorderly, can do violence amongst themselves. Oh, sure. Oh, but, yeah. But oh, they yeah. are, they are, emotions are our, our little army. They're not against us. They are for us. And so I think to be brave in this time is not to, to shut down and try to cut off the anger or the sadness or the fear, 
but to say maybe these are given to me like they were mm-hmm. given to Meg to mm-hmm. to do their job in this season. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's very, very helpful. Yeah. Well, it's, we haven't announced it yet, but my next book um, is actually called Parenting in the Apocalypse, <laughs> Eight, <laughs> Eight Hopeful Habits for an Uncertain Future. And I pitched this project based on my cancer journey. Mm. Um, this was before COVID-19, <laughs> like, like came through like a, like an atomic bomb um, and annihilated our sense of a certain future. Mm. Right. Um, and, and it, you know, a lot of people from the underside of power, people of color, um, people from the Jewish community could tell us that, like, nothing's ever been certain. Like, why did we ever think that anything could be certain? Um, But the very first habit that I'm going to talk about is telling the truth, Mm. Um, telling the truth about how we feel, telling the truth about what's going on. Um, Truth telling um, is uh, Madeline... um, like you call it like you see it well uh, and i think that goes back to trusting that god is more powerful and more loving than we can know and so yes. there is no truth no emotion mm. no doubt that is going to incapacitate or shock or um disarm god you know right i love Absolutely. one of my yes. one of the verses my mom since i was young would always say to me is god is mindful that we are but dust He's he's mindful that this world is very unstable and and that we are always and always kind of on the brink of peril. That's always been the deal. That's always been the thing we Mm -hmm. say yes to. And, um, Mm -hmm. but that in a sense is why we, why we don't live on Kim's odds, you know, that because we are willing to take the burden and the pain and the frustration of love and of freedom and of having a name, it's better to have a name and have all those things than to be nameless and in the green light. Mm, preach that. Oh. Preach that. You you summed it up beautifully. Oh, there we go. Well, it's been so fun to have you on the show, oh, Sarah. Oh, I love it. Thank you, Joy. We'll have to have another chat someday. I think there's much more we could talk oh. about. Oh, oh, we've just touched the surface. Oh, yes. For sure. So for tell, sure. tell people quickly, where can they find your book and anything you're up to these days? Yeah, um, you just you can go to sararthur.com to learn more about A Light So Lovely if you're interested in looking up um, stuff about Madeline. Um, and I hope to have updates soon about my next book um, about parenting in the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> and um, best place you can find me on um, Twitter and Instagram at Holy Dreaming. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you everyone else for listening. I hope you will go and put your interesting thoughts, which I'm sure you will have, on this week's chapter on Instagram and Facebook. I look forward to hearing all of your thoughts and ponderings. Thank you everyone for listening.